Welcome to Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkin Kazarian. Today we're going to talk about vaping regulations that threaten businesses, consumers, and constitutional rights. A growing number of smokers are turning to electronic cigarettes, the so-called vaping, to help themselves get off traditional tobacco cigarettes. That includes vape shop owners like Steve Green, a former heavy smoker who started his business to help others to kick this habit. Steve's business and others across the country are threatened by an illogical and unconstitutional federal regulations that threaten vaping devices, even though they don't contain, contain tobacco. What's worse is the rule that was created by this career bureaucrat with the Food and Drug Administration, who is prohibited by U.S. Constitution to write sweeping federal regulations. On behalf of Steve and small vaping business owners, Pacific Legal Foundation has just filed three separate lawsuits in three federal district courts at the same time. I believe it was yesterday. We have Thomas Barry, attorney from the Pacific Legal Foundation, with us today to talk about this lawsuits and explain to us how they're going to fight for our constitutional rights and our rights to vape. Tom, Tommy, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So, Tommy, tell us about the lawsuits, uh, how, how they took place, how they started, how they took off. Uh, what was the trigger? Sure. Well, it did. Interestingly, it didn't actually start from uh, any knowledge of vaping. I, I was really not aware of this as a policy issue. It started from uh, our interest in uh, the separation of powers and the way that uh, the executive branch, especially over the last few decades, has more and more um, tried to fudge the rules or just completely ignore the constitutional rules. Um, that the Constitution requires it to follow, especially in terms of uh, how it needs to work with Congress. And so one of the, I would say, lesser-known rules, uh, uh, less commonly followed rules, is the Appointments Clause, uh, which requires that anyone who exercises significant authority in the executive branch uh, has to be appointed in a very specific way. They can't just be hired through a civil service process. They can't, you know, it, it's not the same as being hired at a, at a think tank in, in D.C., there's actually a constitutional uh, requirement that you, you can't fudge around. And uh, basically, for the highest ranking officers, you have to be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Um, for uh, inferior officers who exercise significant authority but still have to go to a superior before they can kind of make final judgments or, or permanent judgments, they have a few other options to be appointed. Uh, but only if Congress decides that it's all right for them to be appointed in, in those other options. For example, the president without the Senate or uh, a cabinet secretary. So what we were looking for um, and we suspected was happening quite frequently was that the executive branch was delegating the power to issue rules to people who were just civil servants who weren't uh, appointed under the appointments clause. And we found that the FDA is... Uh, one of the more egregious uh, violators of, of that principle, the FDA, quite a while ago in the mid, at least going back to the mid 90s, has delegated its rulemaking power to um, a position called the Associate Commissioner for Policy, which is not appointed by the president, not even appointed by the Secretary of Health and Human Services Secretary. And this is within which agency? Again? The Food and Drug Administration. So this is all FDA. Yeah, exactly. And the FDA obviously is an agency that issues quite a lot of rules. And a crucial agency, too. Everything that we consume through food and medicine and all the other, you know, areas of our 
life, they're basically affected by the FDA. Right. And there is a general, you know, we have the statutes, like the, the Food and Drug Act and several statutes that have amended that. For our purposes, the most important one is the Tobacco Control Act. But in many cases, those those statutes live, leave a huge amount of leeway up to rulemakers at the FDA to decide who it's going to apply to. And so that's why it can be just as important or more important um, than what, goes, what Congress writes in the statute is who is making the final decisions about rulemaking at the FDA. And so that's why the point of the constitutional rule is if the rulemaker is the Secretary of Health and Human Services or the food and, Commissioner of Food and Drugs, that's at least someone who's been confirmed by the Senate. And what that means is politically accountable people in the, in the legislative branch have the opportunity to review someone's judgment and decide that they're comfortable with this person, you know, interpreting the statutes that they've passed and, and making these judgment calls. But what happens when instead the FDA commissioner kind of passes the buck and says, no, this civil servant two notches below me in the FDA hierarchy is the one who has the authority to issue rules, you, you lose that political ap- accountability. So you kind of have the worst of both worlds. The, the FDA commissioner, you know, has can claim the power, she can claim the power that was given to the FDA commissioner, um, but the FDA commissioner doesn't have, uh, doesn't necessarily need to take the blame because his, his or her name isn't on the rule. The rule can be finalized without the FDA commissioner ever explicitly saying, I've looked at this, I've, I've reviewed this, and I'm giving this my seal of approval. Who is then responsible for this? Isn't our government built in a way that there is always someone responsible for the decisions they make that affect our life? There, there definitely should be. And part of the problem is that, so there, there's a, a particular uh, place where every rule is published called the Federal Register, and every rule has a name at the bottom, someone who signed it. And what that name should be is the person taking responsibility for it. But oftentimes, um, these agencies will kind of fudge things around. Sometimes they'll have someone very low ranking sign it, but then they'll say, oh, the person who signs it isn't the same person who's issuing it. In this case, we don't have that complication. We have a very clear uh, internal document, uh, what's called a a staff manual guide that explicitly says, uh, I'm the FDA commissioner. I've preemptively delegated all my rulemaking power in advance to... um, uh, this position, uh, the Associate Commissioner for Policy, which since February 2010 has been Leslie Cux, uh, K-U-X. And so she's the one who uh, whose name appears at the end of uh, nearly every FDA rule that's been issued since then. So that was where we started, was when we realized that um, Ms. Cooks had been issuing these rules, and it didn't matter the fact that the FDA commissioner had delegated it to her, that it was it was an unconstitutional delegation. And then when we looked at, okay, what are the rules that she's issued? How have these affected people's lives? That's when we quickly got to vaping. And we saw that the rule that she had signed that had had by far the biggest negative impact uh, was this rule. And essentially what it did was it took the Tobacco Control Act, which was passed in 2009 uh, to regulate cigarettes. And it said every every provision in the Tobacco Control Act that applied to cigarettes, now it applies to a whole host of other things. And the most consequential, I think, was uh, the broad term is electronic nicotine delivery systems. And so commonly those are e-cigarettes, vaping devices, or basically anything else where some sort of technological device 
um, allows someone to inhale nicotine, but not actually tobacco. And those have been a huge advance to help people quit smoking because they, you, you still get the nicotine, um, which is kind of the pleasurable. It's, it's a drug similar to caffeine. It's not very harmful, but it's pleasurable. But you don't have the carcinogens, the burning of the tar. You don't actually burn anything. And so now... The that- burn, by the way, is what... FYI, you guys should go check out our episode about tobacco harm reduction where we talk about this in depth with Carrie Wade, a PhD who worked on this issues for a while. But a quick recap is the burn is what is the most dangerous part of smoking a cigarette. Even the UK agency that back in the 60s released this report about cancer that is given to people through smoking and how unhealthy it is, they found that e-cigarettes are 95% more safe Mm -hmm. than usual cigarettes, tobacco. Hence, we are trying to protect vaping and the constitutional rights of people through making sure it's more available and it's definitely safer. Please tell me. Absolutely. You and and other guests are more of an an expert on this, um, the technological aspects and the scientific aspects of it. Our, our, others have sued basically on that, making that point that it's not a tobacco product. How could it be uh, regulated under the Tobacco Control Act? Our suit has focused on the uh, appointments clause issue, which I mentioned. And we've also focused on the First Amendment problem of the uh, applying the Tobacco Control Act to these products. Which, what is the First Amendment problem? Well, uh, one aspect of the rule is um, it's called modified risk statements. And basically, it's any kind of statement saying either this product is safer than the typical tobacco product, or even um, less controversially, this product contains less of or none of a substance, literally any substance. So when it was written for the t- in the Tobacco Control Act, it was targeted at things like cigarettes that said light or low tar or mild or things like that. They were worried about people would see that label and think it's a healthier cigarette when maybe it isn't actually. Um, But now that it's been applied to vaping devices, you get really sometimes absurd results. For example, you could have a peanut butter flavored. There are all sorts of silly um, uh, flavors that people make for their juices that they invent. You could have a peanut butter flavored one. Someone comes in and says, does this actually contain peanuts? I'm allergic to that. If you take the text of the Tobacco Control Act is now applied to vapors, uh, literally, it doesn't allow them to say this unless they've pre-applied to have the right to make that modified risk statement to say does not contain such and such, does not, con- so it's not just applying to does not contain tar, does not contain, you know, carcinogens, it does not contain anything, even if it's obvious that it doesn't contain that. So just a disclaimer, our show is not supporting the view that peanut butter is still silly. Please don't <laughs> oh, sorry. write. I did. No angry emails my way. Send them all to Tommy. Yeah. However, um, Tommy, so you filed in three district, districts. Which, which ones did you file in? What are the cases? Do you mind talking about your clients a little bit more? Absolutely. So one is right here in, in D.C., and that's a collection of... Um, some clients that we had spread out around the country. Uh, one is in the Northern District of Texas, which is basically the Dallas area and north of there. One is the District of Minnesota, um, the whole state. We have some in Minneapolis and some around there. We have 
clients in Texas, Minnesota, and uh, a few others in Michigan, one in California, one in North Dakota. And um, what we really found when we started looking for clients is that the vaping industry is completely different from the cigarette industry in that it really is a mom and pop small business run industry. Very few, there, there isn't, uh, even, even though the Tobacco Control Act talks about manufacturers, there really are, there aren't these like giant billion dollar companies making factories. It's people in their garages, you know, mixing together. Um, Coming a, up with silly flavors. flavors. Silly flavors, exactly. Peanut butter and maybe take the jelly flavor and then see if those two work together. And now, and uh, a lot of them, this is a second or a third career that they were sort of inspired to join. We have um, a company called Moose Juice that has a few shops in um, Michigan. And uh, tragically, the owner of that, Kimberly Manor, her husband actually passed away from lung cancer. Uh, he was a smoker. And so obviously, that's a huge uh, reason that, that she got into this and that she's passionate about helping other people um, kick the habit, yeah, kick the habit, become healthier. And she, in fact, explicitly um, kind of caters to the 50 and over crowd in her in her tiny town. Uh, um, do you mean by flavors? <laughs> Are, does that she have some more old timey flavors? I don't know. That's a good question. I'm like, going to research <laughs> this. I want to know what are the flavors of a yeah. more adult <laughs> population? Something. Yeah. So sodas that uh, went out of business in the 60s, maybe things that that evoke a simpler time. Someone, maybe someone in the South, it's more of a Mountain Dew flavor for <laughs> yeah. nicotine. I don't know. Or Big Red or, or something Big like that. Big Red. Yeah, yeah that, that was a thing. Absolutely. Yeah, so she she's trying to cater to an older audience, you said, and she's very passionate about it, and she has a small shop. Right. One of the striking things, so another, similarly, we have um, a shop run by Skip Murray, and it's owned by her son, Thomas Murray, um, there in Minnesota, and... Uh, Skip herself had suffered from I th multiple heart attacks, I think, as a smoker um, before she she quit using vaping. One of the problems of this first, as I said, why it's a First Amendment violation is that it, if you're a manufacturer, and again, that's a very broad term, that's anybody who's mixed two liquids together counts as a manufacturer. Uh, it says that you have to get approval to make any kind of uh, health claim that's directed to consumers. So if you take that literally, that's not just something you stick on the label or something you put on a billboard. That's just talking to somebody if you're a manufacturer. That's even publishing an article perhaps in a scientific journal. And so they're afraid, she's not sure if she can even tell her life story to her customers. Is that a claim that uh, they're going to become healthier, that, that her product is safer? She thinks it's safer. She's her her history shows that it's safer. What um, about commercial speech? Right. Well, it is. I think it blur. I think that blurs the line between is that the Supreme Court. I think unfortunately has not always protected commercial speech as much as it should and as much as other types of speech. But here, uh, I would say very much uh, much of this speech could be categorized as scientific debate. You know, and and honestly, it when you're protecting someone's First Amendment rights, we don't have to prove that we're right to show that she should have the ability to make this argument. She, a lot of people just want to get into the typical marketplace of ideas, which is where we resolve these uh, controversies. And so if uh, people who are passionate about making this case have their hands tied behind their back, it, it, it puts them at a huge disadvantage. And what's shocking about 
the pre-approval test that the FDA has imposed is it's not even enough to convince the FDA that what you're saying is true. So for the peanut butter example, it's not even enough to, to prove to the FDA's satisfaction there is in fact no peanuts in it. You also have to prove that being allowed to say the truth will have a net benefit on the entire world health population. I don't know how they, uh, apparently they've invented like Robert, you know, a Bentham style util uh, measure across world health. Um, but it's, we think it's just obviously putting the burden uh, completely 180 degrees in the wrong direction. The burden is on the government um, if they want to prevent someone from saying something truthful. The burden is not on speakers to show that their truthful speech will uh, do more good than harm. That sounds like a very important case, and we're really excited that you guys have taken this on. Fighting bad admin law, fighting uh, bad regulation, making sure constitutional rights are protected is one of the reasons we are all in the public interest space. And we hope our listeners uh, will be interested, will follow these cases, look up the videos that you guys, I know, shared of your clients that are very touching. Any last words about your case, um, last thoughts? I, I hope they're not last words. I hope it, uh, it's just been filed yesterday, so there's a long road ahead of us. Um, and we are recording on January 31st. It was filed yesterday, January 30th. That's right. So uh, two months, we should get their response. And um, yeah, we're we're hard at work uh, preemptively trying to figure out how the, the government will try, try to squirrel out of this. But I can assure you that uh, we, we, we think we uh, know what tricks they'll try to pull, and we're not going to let them get away with it. What about, it looks like you guys have this great clients, uh, amazing stories. This three different districts sounds like you're ready for this case to go all the way up. We think it, there's a and real possibility. We, by the way, sidetrack to, we're two lawyers, and when I say all the way up, right. I mean going to the Supreme Court of the United States. Yeah, that's... The, what, the nerdy uh, meaning of all the way up. I'm sure there are more exciting places for, for things and to songs. go. songs. There <laughs> yeah. are songs that are really exciting too. Yeah. Um, yeah, for us, I think there's a possibility because in the admin law, you know, the nerdy admin thing I started off this podcast talking about, there really aren't a lot of cases kind of um, where people have tested uh, this basic premise. We know that it's the Supreme Court established it pretty much conclusively in uh, Buckley versus Vallejo. If we have other lawyers listening, that was 1976. Law students, probably. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, uh, so 42 years ago, yesterday, actually. And they the, there they said, you can't have the um, Senate majority leader appoint members of the Federal Election Commission. They're obviously officers. Why were they officers? Uh, one of the reasons was they were rulemakers. They had the power to create binding rules to uh, regulate election law. So the Supreme Court, really, there's no um, ambiguity there that the Supreme Court has said for 42 years, rulemakers have to be appointed under the Appointments Clause. It's just no one has really, other than a few district court cases, no one has, has held the government to account to, to that principle. Um, and so we think this, uh, we have a chance, because we're going to litigate this so energetically, to um, really establish a precedent on that. So it could it could be, our, our dream is that it's a double win and that it's a win on policy to strike this rule down. And going forward, it's a precedent that will apply not to this rule, but to the entire executive branch, that you can't delegate this power to literally change the lives of millions of people to someone who's never set foot in a Senate committee room, never had to had their names put forward for, for confirmation. 
as Uncle Ben put it, with great power comes great responsibility. Exactly. And on that note, we're going to end the show. Tommy, thank you for being here. We wish you best of luck and we hope you come back and talk about this case or maybe other cases you guys are working on in the future. I'd love to. Thank you for having me. You can follow Tech Freedom on Facebook and Twitter at Tech Freedom. Please leave us a review so others can find the show. Thank you for listening. Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.